2005, there were two sociologists who set out to research what it is that the youth of America believe in terms of religion or religiosity. And these two sociologists, they, they studied a wide swath of teenagers from the age of 13 to 17 across 45 states, and their research produced this really fascinating book called Soul Searching. If you can calculate back 2005, people who were 13 to 17, I see a good number of people in this audience who are, or in this congregation, who are like that. And the, 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 the results of this research I thought were quite fascinating, and, and how they ended up labeling, labeling it was with a new term. They, they found out that people in this age group believe in five main tenets, and they grouped it under this heading called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's not super important that you understand what that is as much as what the tenets of this are. So number one, they, most people believe that there is a God who created and ordered the world. Like we'd be on board with that, that's Genesis chapter 1 stuff. But then after number 1, numbers 2 through 5 kind of fall apart. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to others. I think in the right light and the right understanding in the context of law and gospel, that could be properly understood, maybe. But now things get really kind of messy. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good. Number 4, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to be problem solver. Number five, good people go to heaven. Now when they surveyed these 13 to 17 year olds, they weren't just looking for Christian answers, although a wide swath of them were Christian. They got a number of other answers too. And you can notice in here there are Christian undertones in what is going on. But do you see the problem with this list? What's the issue? The ideas of man have so influenced and impose themselves on God and on Christianity and on what Scripture teaches about Christianity, that they are as far from it as they possibly could be. And do you notice what is conspicuously absent from this list? The cross. In this list, there's no mention of a Savior. There's no mention of a, a Messiah who went to the cross to die for the sins of the whole world. There's no mention of a Jesus who suffered and died to forgive people's sins and earn for them everlasting life. Do you notice what numbers 2 through 5 all center on, or mostly center on? They center right here. Turns out when you have a messiahless, a crossless Christianity, or version of it, your religion, your belief turns inward, and everything becomes arrow pointing up. The central goal of this life is to be happy and feel good. That's so subjective and determined by how you, how you feel and what you want out of this life. Good people go to heaven, who determines what good is? And if good people go to heaven, then you are doing that on your own. Turns out when you remove the cross, and when you remove Jesus from your central belief, you end up with a man-centered religion. And a crossless Christianity, do you know what that is? It's no different from any other of the 4,200 other religions that exist in the world. Do you know what a crossless Christianity is? Well, it's not Christianity at all. This sort of crossless Christianity, do you know what it sounds like? Sounds like the kind of religion that Peter wanted Jesus to be in charge of and that he wanted to be a part of in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, you have there is there's hardly a starker picture in all of the gospels as, as what you see in Peter. Right, think back to last week when Mike read my sermon for you. Do you remember what happened last week? Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And how does Peter respond? response with this beautiful Christ-centered confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus was so overjoyed with this Christ-centered confession that he gives Simon a new name, Petrus, P 
Peter the rock. And he says, he says, you are Peter, and on the rock of this confession, I will build my church. But then just five verses later, you have Jesus calling Peter Satan. How can things fall so far off the rails? How could this happen that Peter goes from condemnation to condemnation in, in almost the same breath? Well, it all happened because Peter bought into a lie. He bought into a lie that's one of the most dangerous and twisted lies that Satan likes to spew, but it's so twisted that it becomes palatable, and it was pal palatable enough for Peter to buy into it, and if it's palatable enough for Peter to buy into it, then certain now corrupt human nature buys into it too. And it's this idea, this lie, that says the cross, it's not necessary. See, from the time that Peter made that Christ-centered confession, Jesus began to tell them everything that was going to be necessary for him to go through six months from this point. Jesus told his disciples it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. It was necessary for him to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. That it was necessary for him to be killed. It was necessary for him to be raised new life. Boy, none of that stand out with Peter. Not at all. And in fact, he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, which, by the way, it's never a good idea to rebuke the king of heaven and earth. Let's learn from Peter on that one. This is what Peter, this is how Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, never will. This will never happen to you. You see, the thing that led Peter to buy into this lie was actually buying into the messianic expectations that first century Jews had during Jesus' day. In the Jews of Jesus' day, they, they had no desire to have a suffering servant as the Messiah. Rather, they wanted a bright king. They didn't want a they didn't want a, a Messiah who was going to be killed, rather they wanted this politically powerful man who was going to establish Israel or re-establish Israel to their place of prominence in history. They wanted a glorious king, not some seemingly helpless figurehead. And Peter bought wholeheartedly into these expectations, and he imposed these messianic expectations onto God and the work that God had sent his son into this world to do. Because you see, Peter, he just couldn't get on board with the cross could not accept that it was necessary for the one that he just confessed as Christ to suffer. He couldn't see it as necessary that the one that he just confessed as the Son of the living God would have to be killed. So instead he goes to Jesus and he pulls him aside away from the disciples and he says, never Lord, that will never happen to you. Ever. Peter didn't think the cross was necessary. And unwittingly he was acting as an agent of Satan. A deceiver who has shown up since the dawn of time and tried to undo every good thing that God has ever put into place. I mean, Satan even showed up in Jesus early on in Jesus' ministry. Do you remember that after Jesus' baptism? Jesus is whisked away into the into the wilderness with, with or by the Spirit, and Satan shows up and tries to tempt him with the variation of that same line that Peter tried to that Peter had bought into. Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. Instead, bow down to me. Worship me, and I'll give you everything that has nothing to do with the cross. The cross isn't the way to go. But Jesus wouldn't listen two and a half years prior to this account, and he certainly wasn't going to listen when an agent of Satan, taking the form of Peter, shows up and tries to dissuade him and, and convince him of that same truth, that the cross isn't necessary. So this is what Jesus says. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You see, the deep things of God the deep things of God tell you that the cross is necessary. But the ideas of men, they try to convince you that the cross isn't necessary. And of those two, which is more palatable? A 
of those two, which is easier to get behind, of those two, which is easier for us as, as people who live in this world to buy into? Well, it's certainly the second one, because our sinful nature, that corrupt darkness that lives in our hearts, it hates the idea of the cross. This object of shame and torment and scorn, this place where criminals would hang and suffocate and die while the whole world would watch. And so Peter, like us, we are sometimes convinced by our sinful nature that the cross isn't necessary at all. Poor Peter. Misguided Peter was, because what Peter didn't understand, even though he had just confessed it to five verses earlier, was that the cross was absolutely necessary. Not, it was not just necessary for Jesus to go to the cross, but it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross for Peter, for the disciples, for the world, for you and me. Because from the since the sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience to God, sin has always had a debt that needed to be satisfied, a payment that needed to be made. And when God established Israel as his chosen people into a nation, he set up three kinds of laws for the Israelites. The moral law, which is what we would call the Ten Commandments, to governing the way that you act. The civil law that governs the way that they act as a people, as a whole. And then, God created the ceremonial law. The bulk of the ceremonial law deals with how sin is paid for. There needed to be blood shed, blood spilled to cover over sin. There needed to be an innocent Passover lamb that was slain. There needed to be a scapegoat upon whose head was confessed the sins of the whole people, and it was sent out into the wilderness, symbolizing the removal of sin from the people. And what Peter didn't realize is all of those sacrifices that happened, that were talked about in the Old Testament, they all pointed forward to what God's Messiah was going to do. That God's Messiah, His Son, was going to be the perfect perfect Passover land that was slain. That He was going to be the scapegoat who would hang on the cross, have the sins of the of the, his people confessed over their head and whisked away into the wilderness of death. This is why the cross is necessary. Because on that cross, Jesus died. And he spilled his blood. And he covers over your sin and wins for you everlasting life. But without that, without the cross, there is no forgiveness. Without the cross, you are still stuck in your sin and there still is a debt that needs to be paid. Without the cross and Jesus' death on the cross, there is no resurrection, and if there is no resurrection from the dead, then there's no reason for you and me to make a Christ-centered confession, and there's even less of a reason for you and me to have a Christ-centered walk. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that Jesus didn't give in to Peter's uh, attempt to assuage him from the cross. Thanks be to God that, that moralistic, therapeutic deism, has, in, with all of its emptiness, didn't dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. Thanks be to God that Jesus saw the necessity of the cross. He went there and he paid for all of our sins. Because once your sins are paid for, it puts what Jesus says in the, the latter part of Matthew chapter 16 into a whole new light. Because Jesus, he, he moves from just addressing Peter, who usually gets most of the attention in this account. Peter usually gets most of the attention. Why? Because he's called Satan. But Jesus then turns after explaining the necessity of the cross to Peter. He turns and explains the necessity of the cross to all of his disciples. And not just the necessity for him, but the necessity for all of them. He gets up close and personal with the disciples, and this is what he says. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can someone exchange for their soul? 
Right here you have very raw, emotional Jesus on display in front of the disciples as he is explaining to them, this is what it looks like to be my disciple. To be my disciple means that you are going to have to carry a cross. If you want to follow me and be a little Christ, it means that you are going to have to deny yourself. Being a follower of Jesus necessitates a cross-centered walk. And a cross-centered walk all begins with a denial of self. But that is such a backward, upside-down way from, the, from how the world works, right? Because the world that tells you to chase after power and success, and when you find and, and get that power and success, you are in essence saving your life because you are making your life better. It's so easy for us to see that. You see how powerful people get away with everything. You see how easy it is when you are successful and you have money and you can do whatever it is that you want. And so we, we have that expectation then of success and power. Just like Peter does, we impose that expectation of success and power on God. And as Christians, this happens in two primary ways. The first way that it happens is we impose our expectation of success and power on the way in which God works in the world and deals with evil. But we see evil all the time. The news this past week, if you pay attention at all, is right with all sorts of people. Another shooting, another set of riots, even a natural disaster. We see these things, and we call them evil, and we say, if God is really who he says he is, that he needs to come forth in power and might and put it all to that. And even better yet, God, you have all of this power. Why don't you give some to us? Give some to us and let us, as your son's disciples, go and deal with all of the evil in the world because we'd be pretty good at it. We'd be pretty good at separating the wheat from the chaff. Boy, do we want that job. But to that imposition of success and power and the way in which God works, he says, deny yourself. Because I've never promised to work in the world, in the world like this. But I do promise you that there will come a day when I'm over the world of all evil, but not yet. Not yet. And so denying yourself means that you don't impose your idea or your expectation of success and power on the way in which God works. The second way that we impose this, these ideas is this. Is that because God works in powerful ways, and he works powerfully through human beings, we think that God should appropriate that power to all of his disciples so that we can use it to get what we want. In other words, because we're a disciple, we have power, and we can exercise that power over others. This dark conviction, it robs, it destroys humanity, and it does untold damage in the name of Jesus. It's this whole concept of, if I were in charge, I could do better. It takes the form of ambition, a disguise that many consider good, and even consider good in the church, but but ambition then moves into harsh criticism and competition and one-offsmanship. And you think, well, if it were me standing up there, I would certainly do a better job. If it were me in charge instead of him or her, well then, I would have better ideas, ideas that would actually work and we wouldn't be in this position at all. That's the overt way that that happens. But there's a much more, or a, an equally sinister way that that happens, in a, in a much more covert way. This idea that takes the form of quiet, prideful comparison that doesn't actually do anything, actually take any action, except to purposefully demean brothers and sisters in Jesus for no purpose other than to elevate yourself, to make yourself feel better. To that, Jesus says, deny yourself. Because those things, they have nothing to do with me. They have nothing to do with my walk. They have nothing to do with the way in which you're walking with me. He also poses this question, what good is it to act like that? Even if some, by some power grab you can, you can save your life for a little bit longer and 
by that power grab gain the whole world, what happens to you? What happens to you once you chase success and power? Maybe you elongate your life for a little while. Maybe you feel better about yourself by, by putting others down. But at the end of the day, you'll still die. And then what does Jesus say? What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? If you have spent the entirety of your life chasing after power and success and trusting in yourself, and by putting others down, or by imposing your ideas of success and power on God, thinking that you could do it better, all that's waiting for you is hell. Because you have not trusted in the right thing. And Jesus doesn't want that for any of you. And in fact, he gives you a better way to walk and a better way to live. It's coming after him. It's coming after him. It's denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. And the person who does that, who relinquishes control of power in their life, who sees others as better than themselves, and lowers themselves, somebody who doesn't make power, power grabs for success and glory and money, you know what happens to them? They die. Because death is the one great equalizer in this world that will touch every single person. But for the person who denies themselves and follows Jesus, there is a major difference. It's that they actually find life. Life indeed. Life forever. This wasn't because they were so deserving. It wasn't because they were so good in this life or so powerful on their own. They have life for one simple reason. Because of the necessity of the cross. The necessity of Jesus Christ where he went. He paid for your sins. He died so that you would not have to. He rose to new life to assure you that eternity is yours. To everyone who denies themselves, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. There is no such thing as a crossless Christianity. There is no such thing as, as a Christianity without Jesus on the cross. But Jesus on the cross means that there is a cross for you and for me to bear in this life. It's the thing that we have to pick up and that we have to carry. And it's important that we recognize and talk about it in the right way. For centuries, there's really been two ways to talk about the cross. A right way and a wrong way. And the wrong way is generally to say that any hardship, that general hardship that enters into your loss of a job, a bad breakup, a, a natural disaster that hits. People like to talk about those as crosses, but that's not what Jesus has in mind here. When he says, if anyone would come after him, he must deny himself and take up his cross. What Jesus is talking about here is anything that you would suffer, any hardship or persecution that you would suffer on account of being one of Jesus' disciples. That's the cross that you and I bear as people who follow Jesus in this world. You could dissect it and I could talk about all of the different kinds of suffering or versions of suffering and hardship that you might face, but I think it's far better to say this. As someone who follows after Jesus, he promises you that you will face hardship and persecution. And every single person in this room, they may face it differently and may look different, but the promise is there. And on your own, if you had to bear that promise, if you had to bear that hardship, you wouldn't be able to do it. And you would be like Peter, wanting to, wanting to get rid of the cross and not see it as a necessity. But the same Jesus who makes you the promise, the fact that you will have a cross, meaning that you will bear hardship and suffering, he also makes you this promise. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. Because I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul says it in a, in a little bit different way. That the present sufferings that we have in this world do not compare the future glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, the stuff that you face for the 70 or 80 years that God gives you strength to have on this earth, it doesn't mean a bit 
because it is such a short span of time compared to what is waiting for you, an eternity with your Savior. And a cross-centered walk sees this. A person who has a cross-centered walk understands this. And it doesn't matter what you face. Jesus promises that you will face it. But not only does he give you the strength to face it, he shows you the light at the end of the tunnel and says that this suffering will not last forever. The person who has the cross-centered walk not only understands this, but they cling to it and they believe it. A cross-centered walk sees the cross for what it really is and understands how it fundamentally shapes the way in which you live. Do you understand how that works? How it reshapes your life? Having the cross at the center of your walk every single day of your life, every single day of your life means that you, that you reevaluate everything that you see in this world. You reevaluate the way in which you live your life. Because now you're no longer chasing after money or success or power. Rather, you walk in a way that is humble, behind Jesus, elevating love for others, elevating others' needs above your own. The cross at the center of your walk, you now you no longer see self-preservation. Self-preservation is a thing that is most important in this life because you recognize that one day it will all end. You wake up in heaven. So instead, the thing that you value most is being able to share this cross with other people, being able to share what the cross means, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. With the cross at the center of your walk, you no longer see, you, you no longer see or have an I can do better than they can attitude chasing after or trying to demean others, thinking that your ideas and your ways work better. Instead, you look at people, and the people that you work with, the people that God has placed in your life, you look at them as complete gifts, and you look at the skills that they have given you as complete gifts, and you say, instead of working against them, I'm going to work together with them to build up God's kingdom here in Huntersville or wherever God places you in this life. Having a cross-centered walk enables you to see the cross for what it really is, not an object of shame or scorn or ridicule. An object and display of God's power and might and love for you. Having a cross at the center of your life shows you this. The most important thing in this life has nothing to do with this life at all. It has everything to do with what that cross will eternity with your Savior. God grant you.